Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. TRP is a church affiliated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. Our current sermon series is a study on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Even though Paul was addressing theological controversies embedded within a first century Jewish context, we believe that there are some very important modern day applications. Perhaps the most notable is the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for salvation and the unity we find in him. Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. We are coming into the home stretch of our sermon series on the book of Galatians. This is week 15, and I believe that we have two weeks left. I say I believe because I've really been struggling with tonight whether or not to, uh, how many verses we're going to go through this evening, but I think we've kind of narrowed it down and we're going to hit the first five verses of chapter six in the book of Galatians. This is where we are going to be spending our time this evening. This is Galatians chapter six, beginning in verse one. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. The word of God for the people of God. So last week when we were exploring the book of Galatians, we finally reached a point where we can see uh, the shift in the book. Paul usually structures his letters according to what I have dubbed and what other scholars have recognized as the indicative and the imperative. For the first uh, four and a half chapters, what Paul has done is laid on thick who God is, what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, how the Spirit is now an active part of our lives, anyone who is trusting in Jesus, how the Spirit is um, allowing us to move away from sin, to understand the move of God. is also, uh, Paul is, is teaching the Galatian churches who they are in light of the truth of Jesus and the gospel. And he has been at pains over the first four and a half chapters to really make this clear to his audience Understand that if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have pledged your allegiance to Christ, if you have said, I will follow you wherever it is that you are leading me, what Paul is trying to teach this group of people is that they are now heirs according to the promise. And for an ancient audience, this had a lot of important ramifications, particularly for the Galatian churches, because what they were struggling with at this point, now that Paul has planted these churches, he's taught them, he's been removed from the community, there has been other people who have have kind of shifted into this uh, community and now began to dissuade them of following Jesus alone. They began teaching a gospel that is Jesus plus circumcision and Sabbath keeping and food laws. He began teaching a gospel that is not just Jesus, but Jesus plus. And Paul, throughout this letter, is trying to reteach the gospel to these people. And for the first four and a half chapters, that is exactly what he's doing. He's laying out all of these 
truth claims, these indicative statements that, that tell the people who they are. And then finally, in the last half of chapter five and into chapter six, Paul begins laying out the imperative. Now, in light of all this, Galatian churches, this is what you must do. Paul, in other words, is beginning to explore what life in the spirit looks like. Now, one more thing as far as background that you have to understand uh, for this to make sense. What Paul has been accused of is moving the people beyond the law. Paul has been championing a, a, a following of Jesus where the spirit can lead. And what people were afraid of at this time was there was no sort of boundaries. There was no more law that would specify what they were to do and what they were not to do. And Paul is beginning to sketch out what life in the spirit looks like. Although for Paul, he's just talking in general terms. And last week, I, I wanted to kind of clarify that for me, as the type of person that I am, very type A, I-N-T-J, like I want to know everything that I need to know. When I was taking notes in college and seminary, like I had my, my pencil and had my bullet points and everything was just as it was supposed to be, all in its order so when Paul says, live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, that's not quite good enough for me. And even in this last little bit of this um, beautiful book of the Bible, he's not giving us a lot of specifics. One scholar says, if it is the Spirit that provides guidance, it's actually impossible for Paul to be narrowly prescriptive in advance. In other words, he can't replicate what the law has been for the people up to this point. If Paul is saying you need to follow the Spirit and allow the Spirit to lead you, Paul cannot just lay out what this is going to look like in circumstances X, Y, and Z. Had Paul given the sort of comprehensive instruction manual that at least some of the Galatians and maybe even some of us might desire, he would have been offering a new law code and undercutting his own argument in this book. The more that I read Galatians and the more that I think of some of these uh, concepts, I am reminded of a song by our dear friend, Derek Webb, who keeps resisting a, a visit to Salisbury, but we believe that he will show up at some point. He has a song called A New Law, and I've made kind of reference to this uh, over the past couple weeks, but let me read you some of these lyrics. And you have to understand, Derek Webb, he likes to kind of poke at people. He's somewhat controversial. And he is definitely poking at the patience of our dear friend Meredith. Okay, he says, don't teach me about politics and government. Just tell me who to vote for. Don't teach me about truth and beauty. Just label my music. Don't teach me how to live like a free man. Just give me a new law. I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy. So just bring it down from the mountain to me. He's seemingly uh, referring to Christians who just want to know what they need to do so that they can follow by the letter of the law and not allow the Spirit to lead them. And I'm convicted by something like that because that, that would be so much easier. But having that would not allow the Spirit to take uh, precedent in our life and to lead us and guide us, it would actually just be constricting and forcing us into this new law. 
So as Paul is, is writing to the Galatians, he's not giving them a point-by-point treatment of what they should do. Instead, he is giving them snapshots of what they should do. But we should not be quick to forget that Paul is providing contextually rooted snapshots. There was a really thick and juicy quote out of a commentary this past week that basically said, if you're going to read the Bible, you can't just jump in, rip it out of the page and apply it to your life. You first must have to understand what the context is that Paul is addressing before you can understand how that impacts who you are and what you are to do. And even the passage that we read tonight, it seems like it's an easy application. If you see um, someone caught in a sin, you go and you attempt to restore them, but do so in gentleness. But understand that even that bit of universal knowledge, this is not, uh, a teaching like that is not limited to the Christian canon. Paul is using it for... um, his own purposes as he is talking to a first century Jewish Christian community. So we have to do our work to understand how it fits in to the larger uh, framework of this letter. So for example, last week we looked at how Paul contrasts the works of the flesh, which is on the left-hand side of this chart, versus the fruit of the Spirit. He says the works of the flesh are evident. They are clear for you to see. And they are not things that are beneficial for the advancement of God's kingdom. These are not things that a follower of Jesus should be engaged in. And again, sometimes we look at that list and we can earmark a couple of those. Maybe the the first three might be something that sticks out to us or the bottom uh, handful. But if you look here at the middle, there's eight terms, eight out of the 15 terms that Paul specifies have to do with interrelational dissension. It has to do with grouping people and putting so-and-so over here and such-and-such over there, and I'm better than them, and they're not better than me, but I'm, I'm terribly envious of this person over here, and there's dissension, and there's discord, and there's all of these problems within the Galatian church. Paul says that the works of the flesh are clear to see, and they involve things like hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and dissension and factions and envy, and these are to be contrast, contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, what Paul is addressing in the Galatian community seems to be factions and discord and issues amongst people groups that are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in the midst of a diverse community. At the end of chapter 5, Paul concludes, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. And again, Paul is kind of heightening this interrelational discord and disunity between people by reinforcing that they should not view themselves as greater than someone else, and they should not be envious of others. Now, within the Christian community, I do think that we can make some application here because perhaps you're in this season where you, everything is clicking on all cylinders. You woke up this morning and you read three chapters of your Bible. Check that off the list. You spent 15 to 20 minutes of solid, good prayer with your Abba Father. You even call him Abba Father, which, which grants you a couple of extra bonus points there. And when you got in the car, you didn't turn on your, your CDs. I say CDs because I have dug my book of CDs from my college days out of the trunk. They are now sitting up in the front seat with me, and I've been going back through the CDs that got me through college. So I don't know, maybe it's a Spotify playlist, what have you, but you said, you know what? Not tonight. Not today. 
Caleb. It's me and Caleb, and we're just gonna be cruising, and like I'm, I'm listening to Chris Tomlin, and then Third Day, and then Chris Tomlin, and then Third Day, because they only play Chris Tomlin and Third Day, and you're just kind of like jamming out to that, and you're like, I, I've, I've earned a lot of points here, and I'm doing things right. And when you took your friend out to Five Guys for lunch, you prayed over the burger. You know, like things are clicking for you. You and Jesus, you're like lockstep and you're just like, I'm getting this, I'm walking by the spirit. And then you look over here and you see somebody else and you might read what they write on Facebook and you say, I am so much holier than that. And we begin to live in an air of conceit. We begin to group and to prioritize where we rank and where others rank. On the extreme opposite side of that, if we're not feeling really great about ourselves, I know that there's moments when we envy other people. One example that I think will resonate with some of you, and I hope this doesn't step on toes, because what we want here in our worship community as we're singing songs to the Lord, which is not the only act of worship that we have, we want you guys to be free to express yourselves in whatever ways that you, um, that you want to express yourselves. But what I've heard from a number of you and people not even in this building. That's a moment when you, it's difficult perhaps to, to lock in and to connect with Jesus. I don't know if it's the music or um, you know, how loud it is or what have you, but there's also something that might take you away when you look over and you see somebody who you say, or at least you think in your heart, like, man, they get it. That person with their eyes closed and their hands up, they get it. And I'm, and I'm not there right now. And you begin to play that game where you say like, man, they're really spiritual and I'm not. And you might envy that. And maybe that manifests in the 15 minutes that we sing songs, or maybe that manifests when you uh, talk to somebody about the time that they spent with Jesus. There was this one friend that I used to have and like just the way that she processed her faith and the way that I processed my faith are so completely different. She would talk about like getting up and just, just hanging out with Jesus and just talking to him and like everything was so great. And I was thinking to myself like, that is just not how I would describe that to anyone. And sometimes you begin to compare yourselves with others and you begin to envy people. But at, at the core of this, what, what Paul is saying is this is all ways that, that move the community and divide the community and cause the community perhaps to be at ends or at odds with one another because either we feel really good about who we are and they're not as good or we envy what that person has at a spiritual level. Whether or not that's even true of who they are and we begin to put these factions. So what Paul is saying is since we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited or provoking, that middle term there really just means irritating. If you follow Jesus, don't be irritating. I'm just gonna move on from that, okay? And I'm sure my friends and my, my, my family could say, well, we just, let's sit there for a minute, pastor, and you just, let's unpack that a bit more, but I don't, I don't want to. Let us not become conceited or provoking or envying each other. Uh, one scholar kind of retranslates the end of chapter five in this way. If it is in sending the spirit into our hearts that God made us alive, and it is, he says, then let us celebrate that life-giving invasion by consistently following the guidance of the spirit in our daily lives. For the spirit produces love, joy, and peace, not the chaos of mutual destruction. 
The end of chapter five is interesting because some people tack it on to the, the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh in that passage and see how it goes along with that. And other people use it as the beginning of the discourse that we're talking about tonight. If you see your brother caught in a sin, then you go and you point it out, but you do so in gentleness and humility. And this, this text here, it talks about the, the problems of, of destructiveness and being led by conceit and by being irritating and by being envious of other people and the different factions that that can create. James Dunn says the fruit of the Spirit is nothing if it does not appear in genuine, practical concern for one another. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is not just something that we manifest and it blesses who we are. That whole stuff that I was talking about, you know, waking up, reading your Bible, praying, and then going in your car and listening to Caleb, like that's not, that might be a part of it, but if it doesn't manifest in the way that we treat or think about one another, it's worthless. When Jesus talks about love, he wants us to go beyond this individualism that, that we so often feel and see the practical concerns for one another. So what Paul is talking about in this snapshot, in the beginning of chapter six, it's linked to what precedes it, but he's going to talk about mutual responsibility. And this is our focus for this evening. And actually, I lied to you. We're not gonna talk about five verses. We're just gonna talk about two verses uh, this evening. Paul says, brothers and sisters, and you can see here that Paul, like throughout uh, the, the beginning chapters of this book, that wasn't a, a common term, but when Paul is using this, he's trying to get people's attention. This is a familial term, obviously, and Paul is trying to establish this relationship with the people that he's writing to. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore. And again, our Greek is jacked up, and I do not know why. But the reason why I had this highlighted is because this word here for restore, it's used of rebuilding a wall or mending nets. There's a, a, a story in Mark's gospel where the disciples are sitting and they're mending their fishing nets. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, you should restore that person, and you should do so gently. Again, all that terrible English up there, that, that term, you should uh, restore that person gently, is literally in a spirit of gentleness, looking back to the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is saying in, in practical terms, the way the fruit of the Spirit will show itself is when you see someone caught in a sin, you'll restore them, and you'll do so in a spirit of gentleness, but as you go, watch yourselves or you also might be tempted. Now, for the longest time when I read this passage, I thought to myself that when you would go and you'd have this conversation, Paul says, look out or you too will be tempted in the sin that you are pointing out to the people. So in an extreme example, if you go to someone who struggles with alcoholism, Paul would be saying, but be careful lest you too become alcoholic, or you too begin to struggle with alcoholism. Now the text is ambiguous, it might include that, but probably uh, a better understanding of what Paul is saying is in light of everything that we've already talked about, about being conceited, about being envious, about being irritating. When you go and you have these conversations, you do so in a spirit of gentleness, but look out or you also may be tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought. 
Look out or you might be tempted to think that you have it all figured out and you're going to go do Jesus a real favor by pointing out all the ways that this unfortunate brother is really screwing the pooch. You know, there, there are these, uh, these moments where you should watch yourselves or you too might be tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And I think that that actually is more of a danger than falling prey to the same sin in a lot of situations because we begin to play the savior. We begin to play the instrument that God needs in order for this person to get right. And there's no other way that he could speak to them without me. And that's where we start. We're on very dangerous territory when we begin to think of ourselves in that way. Now, this whole like calling people on their sin sort of stuff, this is not just Paul. This is not just his idea. For example, we have these texts from uh, the Qumranic community known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in one of their writings called The Rule of the Community, you guys are really getting your money's worth tonight. Whenever we're going Dead Sea Scrolls, you just think like, okay, I'm gonna take notes on this one. The rule of the community, it says, they shall rebuke one another in truth. When you're going to, to call someone in, in sin, they should rebuke one another in truth, humility, and charity. Let no man address his erring companion with anger or ill temper or obduracy or with envy prompted by the spirit of wickedness, but let him rebuke him on the very same day lest he incur guilt because of him. I'm not really sure what that last phrase is, is meaning there, but it continues. And furthermore, let no man accuse his companion before the congregation without having first admonished him in the presence of witnesses. They're giving practical um, rules, in a sense, for how to go about having these conversations. And you must understand this about the Qumranic community. They had removed themselves from uh, all of the community because they wanted to be pure and they wanted to be holy. And the only way that they could do that, they felt, was to go out into the wilderness and to establish their own community. And this is the way that they are talking to one another and how they would point out the sin in the person uh, next to them. We also have this text, this classic text from Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is talking. He says, if your brother or sister sins, you go and point out their fault just between the two of you. That's how you start. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, then you take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in this, how this plays out, you go and you talk about this wrong that you have felt uh, in, in the relationship with another person. And if they don't get anywhere with that, then you bring other people along. If they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You guys know Francis Chan? He's a pretty famous pastor. He's written a couple books. Kate and I used to go to his church in Simi Valley when we lived out in Southern California for a little bit as I was doing some school. We were there one day and it was a strange day. We walked in and there was like police officers around the building and we walked in and he kind of grabbed the mic and he said, listen, uh, you might have seen like there's some police officers around the building and I just want you to know that like we, if you see this guy and they flashed a picture of the guy up on screen, he's like, if you see this guy, just alert one of the officers there. Um, we as a community, we have handed him over to Satan. 
And you're like, bro, I just read Crazy Love and I thought it was a good book, you know? I mean, I, I don't know what, what we're doing here. But he was like, they, they had taken this passage and other passages in the Bible so literally that they felt that their last ditch effort for winning this person back to Jesus was to hand them over to Satan and to remove them from community and to put a perimeter of police up. Now, there was, some, there was a lot of other things going on there with that, but that was where they were at. I don't know what to do with that. I didn't plan on telling you that. But here we are nonetheless. So for some people, they take this, uh, this discipline uh, issue very seriously. You probably won't see police officers stationed around the building, but hopefully we will be able to have conversations with you about sin. My sin, your sin, whoever. and hopefully those conversations happen within community. So when Paul is talking about this, he, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't say that this is my job or this is the job of the elders or leaders. Paul says, anyone who is walking in the spirit. And what Paul has said previously is, that's all of you. So he's not putting a hierarchy here uh, in play, but just real talk for a second. This is difficult. Any way you shake it, like this is difficult. I wrote this note and I thought to myself, well, I mean, part of it is we're very good at at least one part of this conversation, namely identifying when our brother or sister is being an idiot right? That's like second nature to us. We just look around. It's like, that person's not getting it. Look at them. What are they doing? Crazy. You know, it's, it's easy for us to make that judgment, but then to do something about it is actually difficult. For example, when Paul says that anyone who is living in the spirit should restore his brother or sister, that's difficult for us to be living in the spirit and to be in a place where we are um, prepared to have that conversation. Now, don't play this game because I know you're already thinking it. You say, oh, well, I just got an out there because if I'm not feeling myself to be in a place to address this issue, then I don't have to. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is in order for this conversation to go well, in order for us to be used by God in this way, we need to be living uh, in lockstep with the Spirit, not only so that we can identify the sin in other people's lives, but then actually begin to address it in a way that is cloaked in gentleness and humility, and in a way where we won't be tempted to think that we are the cream's cheese, or the cat's pajamas, or whatever other phrase you might want to use there. It's also difficult for us to restore that person, meaning a lot of times it's easy for us to see what goes on and then to talk about that, not with that person, but with this person over here that we're closer with. That person was an idiot. Can you believe it? Let me tell you what I saw. And then we go in to have this side conversation that's not edifying or helpful in any way. It just makes us feel good because we get to throw this guy under the bus. And again, we are falling prey to this idea of thinking that we're better than we are by looking at this person over here and saying they don't get it. It's also difficult to actually restore that person. If we do have a chance to have a conversation with them, the way that this verb is working here, it's not like you just kind of pick them up and you dust them off and you say, okay, well, you have to sit in the, in, the, in the dunce cap for a while until you earn your stripes again. This is like a restoration back into community where there is no 
I'm better, you're not. It's like you bring someone in and they get back in the community. It's almost like the infraction goes away. Not that we forget things, but it doesn't put people at a lesser place within our eyes. Why? Because if you ever read Paul, what he says is, we all do this. We are all messed up. We all sin. Right? So in the, in the end of, of Romans chapter 1, he gives this big, lavish uh, example of sinfulness that every Jewish person at the time would have been completely on board with. He's talking about human sexuality, and he's, he's throwing this out there and saying, like, so all of his readers, you could think, are just being like, yeah, that's, this is not good. This is sinful. This is not good. And then in chapter 2, he turns the corner and says, but you need to keep your mouth shut. I'm paraphrasing here. You need to keep your mouth shut because you are no different or you are no better. And then it climaxes in chapter three. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. How often do we forget that? Look at that person over there. They don't get it. We have just forgotten that we're no different. Restoring that person to the community. There's also a, a difficulty in restoring someone in the spirit of gentleness. This does not come easy for us because we struggle, I think, with wanting to place ourselves in higher positions. We struggle with really caring about people. Notice here I say restoring in a spirit of gentleness and not condescension. Not just being that person that always points out the faults in your, your friend, you know. Well, that's, that's just my friend. They always kind of miss, miss it, and I just have to be here to help them. Like not doing that sort of thing, or not having this feigned concern where you, where you see someone flailing, you say, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go talk to them, even though I haven't ever talked to them before. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be the person. You know, there, there's things that, that we do, there's ways that we can go about this, and a lot of times it's difficult for us to conjure up that spirit of gentleness because we might not be walking in the spirit. The last thing is avoiding the temptation to congratulate ourselves when we actually have the conversation and then immediately make it about who we are and how good we are at having this conversation. There's difficulties here that Paul is laying out for us to be aware of. He concludes this, this two-verse introduction into chapter six, carry each other's burdens. The way that he wants us to be doing community is not as individuals, but us in community so that we can help. We don't point out sin because we feel holier than someone else. We point out sin because that sin affects the community, and we don't want to see people bound in that way, and we don't want to see people struggle. And when we have that conversation, we just don't have that conversation and then walk away. We have that conversation, and we begin to carry their burdens with them. And again, Paul is notoriously vague here. Well, what does that look like, Paul? I don't know. What does that look like for you? I don't know. What does it look like for you to carry each other's burdens. In your particular situation, I cannot answer that, but I can say that in this way, when we do that, when we're able to point out the sin in other people and we do so in a gentle way, when we're able to step in and carry each other's burdens to help them, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. In other words, we are loving 
as Christ loved. We are demonstrating a self-sacrificial love that we see most preeminently in Jesus who gave his life for us. And when we carry one another's burdens, when we put our agenda off to the side and allow other people to become more important, we love in a way that Jesus loves. And that, friends, is what Paul is after. And I think that that is what Jesus is after. And that's certainly what I'm after in this community that we begin to love in a way where we carry each other's burdens, that we care for our individual holiness and the holiness of the community. We're able to have conversations, not in a way that's condescending or not in a way that's feigned concern, but we actually have concern for people. We actually care about people. We actually do want to model gentleness and humility and respect because we are no different because we too, as Paul would say, have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what does this look like in our community? Um, Richard Hayes says, a church that takes Paul's pastoral guidance seriously will seek to develop patterns of life together that enable us to profit from gentle and timely corrections offered by other members of this community. We are seeking to develop patterns of life together. I began this talk with some announcements. And in one of those announcements, I talked about small groups and the importance of small groups. I do not believe that we can develop a pattern of life together if we are just showing up to this shared space on Sunday from 5.30 to 7-ish. I do not believe that we can get to know one another well enough where we can have meaningful conversations about sin and transgression and about the difficulties that we have and about even knowing what the burdens that the person next to us has so that we can take our part of the load. I think that whatever way that looks like, maybe it is small groups or maybe it's being intentional about having coffee with people. It's not reducing your spirituality to yourself, but it's allowing the community to play a role in that because at the end of the day, when I meet you guys for coffee, the cry of your heart that is expressed in different ways but is yet very similar is just that you would be known and that you could know others. And I think that this is what Paul is getting at here. We're no different than this community. All we want to do is to know one another and to be known for who we are by each other and not to be judged because of that but to be accepted in Jesus and have a shared place at the table where we can say, as followers of Jesus, we are here, regardless of the diversity of our political views, regardless of the diversity in how we read scripture, regardless of the diversity in the, the problems that we have and the burdens that we carry, we are family. And perhaps this is just pie in the sky. Perhaps this is just lofty ideals of what the church should be. But dang it, this is what I would love to see us go towards in 2018. To allow people to feel community, not just because of the things that we need, but because I believe this is what the church should look like when we are walking in step with the Spirit and we are allowing the self-sacrificial love of Jesus to mold and shape who we are. It is not about me or you. More so, it is about us growing together through Jesus. That sounds good, doesn't it? Let's fight for that and let's run towards that in this year. 
Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.